Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast series on the story of Jonah. I've had an interest in this story for a while, and my desire to share this with you is coupled with an amazing online study I've been taking with the Bible Project on the book of Jonah. If you have about 18 hours, I would strongly suggest you take it. It's free, and honestly, the amount of Bible knowledge that team has is extraordinary. I've learned so much. Now, to your great relief, I'm just going to give you the highlights here. I'll start by asking, how many of you have really visited the story of Jonah since you left Sunday school, other than maybe rereading it quickly as you challenge yourself to read through the Bible in a year? The tale of Jonah is a story loved by lots of children, but I would say probably not really understood by most adults. And I'll put myself in that category as well. It's an extremely short book of only four chapters, and depending on the size of the font of your Bible, it may only take up about four pages. But I gotta tell you, it is jam-packed with information. I asked my husband Jeff a few questions about what he could recall about the story. And I must admit I was impressed with the amount of details he remembered without having revisited this story in over 40 years. When you're a kid, the story captures your imagination and you start to think that Jonah must have done something really bad to end up in the belly of a whale. And you probably laughed at the fact that the large fish also spit him out after three days and he landed on dry land. Did he know where he was? Was he all slimy with fish goo? How did he get to where he needed to go? Why did the fishermen toss him overboard in the first place? Is this a good reason to not go deep sea fishing with people you don't know? I can honestly say this story sufficiently freaked me out when I was little to the point that I got nervous swimming in any body of water where I couldn't see the bottom clearly, which did limit my swimming to pools and bathtubs. So many questions. In this first podcast, we're going to talk about chapter one in the book of Jonah and then fill in some of the background to the story. And then we'll focus on chapters two through four in our subsequent podcasts. The book of Jonah was written around 785 to 760 BC. It's in the Old Testament, right after the short book of Obadiah and right before the book of the prophet Micah. It may have been written by Jonah himself, but we're not sure. So, who exactly was Jonah? Well, the book of Jonah gives us a clue as to who he was. Jonah, first off, was a real person. That's important for us to remember. This is not a fairy tale story just placed in the middle of the Bible. It's a cautionary tale, but it's true. We need to uncover why stories like this are even in the Bible and why they matter and how they point the way to Jesus. We also need to kind of relearn how Jesus and all of the Jews during his life viewed these ancient texts. Remember, three quarters of the Bible is written about the time before Jesus was born, and yet it all points to him. 
The authors of the Bible Project have said, quote, the Hebrew Bible is the kind of literature that doesn't hit you over the head with its meaning. It asks you to give it a lifetime of reflection to uncover what it might mean. Now, that's hard for us. We want to read something once, check the box that, yep, done that, and then move on. But the whole purpose of the Bible is to point us to Jesus and to help us to understand who he is and why he wants to have a deep personal relationship with us. And that takes time. We're supposed to meditate on his word day and night. Now, the first sentence in Jonah tells us who this story is about. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, the authors of the Bible make certain assumptions about their audience. When you read Jonah, son of Amittai, they assume that you'll say something like, oh yeah, I know that guy. He's a prophet. Now, let me think what he did. However, for most modern readers, we haven't grown up memorizing the scriptures. And so, more than likely, we have no idea who this guy is, except God's talking to him, which is pretty cool, and is telling him to go to some big city that's wicked called Nineveh. This is where a good study Bible with a good index comes in handy. When you read a text in your Bible, and you notice other scripture references either to the right or the left-hand side, you need to take notice of them because they are referring you to other references where this phrase, this person, or this event is mentioned. Now here, right after the first sentence, we're referred to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. When we look up this reference, well, a few things are supposed to come to mind. First, we're supposed to think about First and Second Kings used to be one book, and it was written while Israel was in exile in Babylon around 550 BC, 200 years after the book of Jonah was written. So the books of First and Second Kings are these books that look back over this period of about 400 years that the prophets lived. And they were predicting this exile in Babylon. They were predicting the division and the ultimate destruction of Israel and the temple. Now, specifically, the second books of Kings chronicles the kings of Israel and the eventual overthrow of the kingdom. In 2 Kings, it kind of reflects back on the prophets that continue to warn Israel, look, if you don't turn back to God, the Lord is going to judge you accordingly. 2 Kings then demonstrates the truth of the prophets' many warnings, but it also demonstrates that God's patient and he's slow to anger and that he's faithful and that he's going to remember his promise that he made to Abraham, and then eventually to King David, that David's family line would not come to an end. And why this matters is because 
Jesus is eventually going to be born from King David's line. So we now know the purpose that the author had in writing 2 Kings. So let's look at who they say Jonah was. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 says, He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Libohamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hefer. Now, during the time of Jesus, for example, his Jewish audience would connect Jonah to the prophet mentioned in 2 Kings. Now, many biblical scholars actually call this a hyperlink, where the author assumes that the reader's mind is going to connect people and events and also like repeated words to other texts found elsewhere in the Bible. This is why the Bible sometimes seems confusing or really awkward with bizarre repetition. It's because the writers actually did this on purpose. They want their reader, or initially, remember, before people owned Bibles, it would have been their listeners, to reflect back on, now, where did I hear that before? So, when we read in Jonah, the name Jonah, son of Amittai, we're encouraged by the author to connect this to the Second Kings guy, where we're told that Jonah was a prophet who temporarily restored Israel's boundaries to what they were during the reign of King Solomon. Now recall, the prophets were God's messengers. So at this point, we might also think of other biblical prophets, like Moses, Jeremiah, Elijah. Now hold that thought. The Bible gives us a very realistic portrayal of people. Even the great prophets. Because the Bible is true, and it's a story of the human condition, warts and all. If you think about it, the Bible's brilliant in its realism because there is value in the tragic story. Because as humans, it's impossible for us to improve until we identify what is wrong and sinful in us. This again points us to our need for a Savior. Now, we also notice in our Bible on the right or left-hand side of the text that there's another scripture connection right after this first line in Jonah. And it points us this time to the New Testament. It's Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. So when we look at Matthew, let's see what he has to say about this guy Jonah. Well, here Matthew is quoting Jesus, and Jesus is responding to religious leaders who have been asking Jesus for a sign or a miracle to prove that he is who he says he is. So this is how Jesus answers. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here.
Okay, so now we as modern readers know this guy Jonah is pretty important because Jesus is even using him as an example for pointing his listeners to the fact that Jesus is going to re resurrect after being dead for three days. But we, the reader, is also encouraged to ask, okay, so is Jonah an example of good behavior or of bad behavior? We're going to soon discover that Jesus is actually insulting the religious leaders by mentioning Jonah. Jesus is saying that the religious elite aren't even on the same footing as Jonah or the evil Ninevites, which isn't saying much. Next, we have this city called Nineveh, and we're told that it's wicked and God wants Jonah to go there and preach against it. Now, as a reader, if you're not sure where Nineveh is or what significance it is, this is where you need to be a detective. And there's so many online resources to help you. I have a huge book. It's called Strong's Concordance. But you can go online to resources like Bible Hub and get the same information. Basically, a concordance just lets you find out where else in the Bible is this word found. It'll also tell you the Hebrew or the Greek term for the word you're searching. So, when I look up Nineveh, I find it's listed in Genesis chapter 10, Isaiah, 2 Kings, Jonah, of course, Nahum, Zephaniah, and then in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke. Now, before I even look up any of these references, just by seeing how many times it's listed, this tells me, this isn't a fluke, that this place, Nineveh, is pretty significant. And as such, it's really mentioned since the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, all the way through to the New Testament Gospels. So I decide first I'm going to look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 8 through 12, to see what it says about Nineveh. Well, this is the story about the descendants of Noah and his three sons. So a quick reminder, Noah has three sons, Ham or Ham, it's H-A-M, Shem, and Japheth. Now, Ham, he's the one that shames his father, Noah. And then eventually one of his descendants is this guy named Nimrod. Nimrod becomes a mighty warrior. And chapter 10 tells us that he's most likely the founder of Babylon. Babylon, bad place, becomes a godless empire. And the Bible says that the first centers of this guy Nimrod's kingdoms were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, Kalnak, and Shinar. And then from there, it says he goes to Assyria and he built Nineveh, which was called a great city. Now, here's an aside. When something in the Bible is described as a great city, this is supposed to give us pause. Our minds are supposed to go to the Tower of Babel, where man was making a great city to make himself seem great. So the fact that we see that Nineveh was a great city helps us to think this might not be a good place. So then I decide, okay, I'm going to look at what the prophet Nahum had to say about Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And why did I choose to look at Nahum? Well, 
If you think of the role of ancient prophets, they kind of knew what was going on. And since Nineveh is listed as appearing in the book of Nahum, he's probably a good source to give me a little lowdown on Nineveh. Nahum is a prophet about a hundred years after Jonah. And his whole purpose was to pronounce God's judgment on Assyria. Uh-huh. Well, here's the very first line of his book. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh. Aha. So, as I said, this prophet came about 100 years after Jonah. So now we're left wondering, okay, did Jonah go to Nineveh and give them God's warning? Because here we are 100 years later, and this isn't looking good for Nineveh. Oracles are messages from God. So I, I just go a little bit later, and in Nahum's book, it says, the Lord is a is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Ooh, well, it is true. God is slow to anger, thank goodness. Bible tells us this many times to the point where we may be like, okay, God, just do it already. How long are they gonna be allowed to be so bad? God does give his followers lots of chances to repent and to share his love and truth. Way back in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. His judgment will come. God does not allow evil to go unchecked forever. A quick note, the reason why God does not check evil immediately is because if he did, none of us would be here. Just think about that. Okay. So we've learned who Jonah is. He's a prophet of God who has helped Israel restore its borders. We know that Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So if it existed today, it would be in Iraq near Mosul. Prophet Nahum tells us that Nineveh is a city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder. In fact, it was a city that used its beauty, its prestige, and its power to seduce other nations. Nineveh basically would lull other nations into trusting them, and then Nineveh would invade them and destroy them. So let's see what Jonah does. Seems like this city is deserving of some God whooping. So let's go to Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So we pause again. Okay, we know Jonah is a prophet, seems like. At the moment, he will not win Prophet of the Year Award. Did we just read that he ran away from the Lord? Not too bright, is he? First, can you really run away from God? David wrote in Psalm 139, about 300 years before Jonah, 
You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So the answer is no, you can't run from God. We are then asking, why did Jonah run away? And why did Jonah go to Joppa to head to a place called Tarshish? As a prophet of God, shouldn't Jonah have known you really can't run from God? Now, Joppa, J-O-P-P-A, is modern-day Jaffa, J-A-F-F-A, which is a Mediterranean seaport in Israel. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter actually lived there for a while. So, Joppa, a seaport. Now, the Bible tells us that Jonah boards a ship for a place called Tarshish. Ships of Tarshish actually mentioned a few times in the Bible. Tarshish appears to have been an island west of Israel, somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea, and it was known for its gold and other riches. Now, the biblical use of this term, ships of Tarshish, well, it's not good. It implies someone seeking worldly wealth. In the Bible, Tarshish kind of represented an exotic, distant land, and kind of ironically, what we could call a pseudo-Eden, which is really what these ancient large cities were trying to become. People were always looking for sources of wealth. The Bible Project says um, they were looking for sources of wealth and resources that they would use to create, well, their own versions of Eden, thereby subjecting themselves to judgment. Jonah flees to Tarshish, just as all biblical characters who attempt some kind of return to Eden because of their want of power and scheming. But God wants to give all of humanity the gift of Eden. He, he does not want us to recreate it. Let's summarize. Jonah... It's a prophet of God who's been asked to speak God's judgment on a great evil city called Nineveh. So Jonah heads for the port of Joppa. Instead of going to Nineveh, he boards a ship heading towards Tarshish because he thinks he can escape God. We saw how this desire to escape God was a hyperlink to David, Psalm 139, where we see literally you can't go anywhere to escape God. But now we're at this point where we're supposed to pause to think, are there any other prophets who 
tried to escape God's calling? Yes. Moses. He raised five objections to God when God wanted Moses to free the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. There's Jeremiah. He gave two objections to God. And then the prophet Elijah, he denies God's goodness and he assumes he's all alone and then gets very dramatic and wants to die. And now we have Jonah. And we're kind of forced to ponder, where does he fit in with this list of prophets? One of the things, as you study the Bible, you'll start to notice about Hebrew literature is that unlike most modern day authors, we just don't get a lot of backstory. There's not a lot of information, which means we're supposed to ponder and infer based on what else we know about history, geography, the people involved, the character and goodness of God, and then the other Bible stories. Because the Bible is meant to be read as a continuous narrative story of how God is going to restore the whole world and everything in it to bring it back into a right relationship with him. All the stories are linked together. Many people talk about the Bible using kind of a quilt metaphor, which isn't a bad kind of metaphor, because if you think about a quilt, each piece of a quilt tells a story, right? But then the story is woven together with all the other stories, all the other pieces, until it becomes a quilt. In the New Testament, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, he kind of tells us why we should care about all these stories in the Old Testament. He says, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then the line right before this says that studying the scripture makes you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul knew that learning these Old Testament stories was important because they would point us towards our need to be rescued through faith in Christ. The entire Old Testament shows us we need a savior, a chosen one, someone like Elijah, but better than Elijah, who will bring about our redemption and restore us literally to Eden, to that right relationship with God. Now, we're going to continue to see as we study the book of Jonah how this simple short story of the prophet of Jonah points us to Christ. So, after only three lines in the story of Jonah, we as the reader are encouraged to read on to find out, well, gosh, if in fact, is Jonah a good prophet, a bad prophet, or a misunderstood prophet? Does he perhaps have a good reason, at least in his own mind, for rejecting God's request? Based on what we know about the evil city of Nineveh, can we start to think about what his reasons might be? What are we going to start to see in the story of Jonah is things are not as they appear. Things are actually inverted. What I mean by that is people don't behave in an expected way. The very people that we would think would be bad and sinful actually repent to God. And the people who already have a relationship with God end up acting very poorly. 
So far in our story, God has a specific job for Jonah that Jonah does not want to do. And so we find that he's running in the opposite direction. Well, we might want to think about this. Are we trying to run away from God? Are we perhaps more like Jonah than we want to admit? What is it that God has laid on our hearts that we don't want to hear or don't want to do? Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 reminds us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Have a blessed day.